The message you are listening to was recorded by Campus Outreach Minneapolis, the college ministry of Bethlehem Baptist Church in Minneapolis, Minnesota, for the 2016 Twin Cities Project. More information about Campus Outreach Minneapolis can be found at cominneapolis.org. and um, feel excited and ready to go engage in different cultures and to learn and to apply what we were talking about yesterday, Father. And I ask that as we go out, that you would um, use us as salt and light and that we would shine for you um, and also be considerate and careful and um, engage in the culture well. Praise things in your son's name. Amen. All right, last night when we uh, did this global thread, there was one verse that we left out that we had talked about. Now, that's the Great Commission, or at least the way the Great Commission is found in Matthew 28. So I want to start there this morning and take a closer look at Matthew 28. So take your Bibles and turn there, or your phones, or whatever you use. Matthew 28. Matthew 28, 16, starting verse 16, says, Then the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. When they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. Then Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always. To the very end of the age. Question is, who's, who are they speaking to? Who, who's Jesus speaking to there? To the disciples, yeah? Exactly. And who else is he speaking to? Who else is this written to? All the nations, the Gentiles. Okay, it's... To us, right? Is he speaking to us? How do we know it's speaking to us? How do we know that this is for us as well? Well, look at that very last phrase. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. Is it the end of the age yet? No, it's not, is it? So when he says, I'm with you to the very end of the age, who is the you? Well, it's you and you and you and you and you, right? So this is still binding on us today as, as, as the mandate given to us, the church. Now, I want to look closer at, at, at this passage and really get to the core of what it's saying. And so to help us do that, we're going we're gonna, to uh, we're gonna diagram the sentence. Anybody here an English major? Love grammar? Love diagramming? No, usually not. Usually, usually nobody's in that position. All right. So we're going to diagram. So there in your books on page, what is it, page 13? And you see, especially that verse 19 there. And we're going we're gonna to diagram that. So looking there on, on page uh, 13, therefore go make the signs of all nations, so forth. First question, what is the what is the subject? What or who is the subject? You. Ah, and understood you. Good. 
people sometimes don't even get that understood. So it's an understood you. So whenever something is a command, go take out the trash. It's understood it's you. Go take out the trash. Okay? And then what is the, uh, what we call the imperative verb? The, the, the primary verb that's giving the primary command, the imperative verb. What's the primary verb there? Command. Go. Go. No. Yeah. Go is not the imperative verb there, not the primary command. But we often, many people see it as that. There's a couple problems when we see the primary command or read it as a primary command to go. Okay, one of those problems is then the Great Commission kind of gets reduced to a, an evangelism command to, to go and evangelize. And that falls pretty short, way short of what this command is, mandate is telling us. And then oftentimes what happens is anything that gets involved going outside the walls of the church gets called missions. And so we end up doing a lot of good things, sometimes locally or maybe some good things even globally, but we miss the main point. And, and so sometimes we see signs like this as we're leaving the church parking lot, that the mission field begins here. And we're going to look in a minute from some of Paul's writings why I don't think that's a good sign. So what is the imperative verb? Make. It's make. Right, it's make. Now, that verb make is also what we call a transitive verb. So a transitive verb is a verb that, that, that can't stand alone. It's an action verb, but it has to have something that receives the action. All right? So if I say to you, sir, go make, what comes to mind? Go make what? <laughs> right? Go make what? So there has to be a direct object, something receiving the action, right? So you make, so what's the direct object from that sentence? You make, okay, you make disciples. Right, you make disciples. And so if you were to get on... Google and look up any evangelical church in the U.S., probably they're going to have a mission statement that says something to this effect, right? Making disciples, you know, developing fully committed followers of Jesus, that kind of thing. Good thing, right? Make disciples. Problem is, that's not exactly what this passage says, all right? Um, so I have a... A, a Greek-Hebrew study Bible. Uh, it's still old school. I mean, there's an app for stuff now. but um, Greek-Hebrew study Bible. And it's too small to bring down and show everybody. So I took a picture of it and I put it up on the screen. And so notice, this is, this is taken out of my, on my study Bible. Notice all these numbers that come after words. Okay, those numbers are there. Uh, and if I look up those numbers in the back of the Bible, it'll tell me what the, the Greek or the Hebrew word is. Uh, for that English word. And so there we have, go and make disciples all nations. And so notice here, after disciples is 3411, but notice that make disciples is underlined. The reason that verb-noun combination is underlined is because in the original, that's only one word. It's not make disciples, but it's one word. So if we look up 3411 in the back of the Bible, 3411 is Matthew 2 and what part of speech is it? It's a verb, okay? Now, with that understanding, it changes things a little, right? Does it change the subject? 
Say no. 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 <laughs> okay, it's still an understood you, right? But now, what is the imperative verb? Yeah, it's make disciples as one word. So it's really, it's really using the word disciple as a verb. Okay, it's using disciple as a verb. It's that action of discipling, the action of making disciple. So it's using disciple as a verb. Now, if we use disciple as a verb, it's kind of the same thing as make, right? It's kind of like it has to have an action. Because if I say, Jake, I say, you disciple, disciple who, disciple what, right? So, so now what's the direct object? You disciple? Okay, you disciple nations, right? And the emphasis there is on, this isn't correct uh, diagramming, but we'll put the word all there. So you disciple all nations, all right? Now, let's look back in, in, in our study Bible. Look at that word nations. Also has a number by it. The number is 1620. So if we look up 1620 in the back of the, the Bible, it's the word ethnos. It's a noun. It's the word ethnos. Now, what English word do you suppose comes from the word ethnos? Ethnic, ethnicity, right? So... You disciple all nations, or it would be just as correct to say, you disciple all people groups. So think about those two statements. It can, if we read it, you make disciples, that's an S, or you disciple all nations, or all people groups. And you know, almost every time that you look up that word nations, Gentile, peoples, in the New Testament, it's almost always this word. It's almost always talking about ethnic groups, people groups. So is there a difference in these two statements? I think there's some pretty big implications of how we read the Great Commission. All right, if we read the statement as you make disciples, so who's the focus? It's on disciples, on just individual disciples, right? And so the question comes up then, if it's making disciples, individuals, anybody, do I have to leave the comforts of home to obey that mandate? No. Are there people... <laughs> here in Minneapolis to keep us busy the rest of our lives. People that need to be heard about Jesus, be saved, and be taught to follow him, right? We can spend the rest of our lives making disciples here in Minneapolis. So no, we don't have to leave the conference home today. Is it something we can measure, make disciples of the whole world? Seven billion people, I don't know how we would keep track of that, Right? And so if it's not something we can measure, is it something we can complete? To me, it's like running a race without a finish line. Just make disciples of everybody, anybody and everybody, and I really can't measure it, so I really can't complete it, so, you know, I can work hard at it, not work hard at it, whatever. <coughs> but now, 
It doesn't say you make disciples, but it says you disciple all nations. Right? We're not just, just to disciple individuals. It says disciple nations. So now the question is, who's the focus? It's the nations, right? It's people groups. That's the focus, is people groups. And now the question is, will it require some to leave the comforts of home to obey this mandate? Yeah, the answer is absolutely. Absolutely. Is it something that can be measured? Anybody have any idea how many people groups are in the world today? Let's look at some global stats. Um, research, good research has been done, and they've identified over 16,000 people groups. So a couple hundred countries, but over 16,000 people groups. So in Laos, where I live, there's about 7 million, small countries, 7 million people, but only about 2.5 or 3 million of those people are Lao people. There's over 130 different people groups just in that one small country of Laos with different languages and different barriers to understanding and accepting the gospel. So 16,000 people groups and 6,500 of those people groups are, are listed as unreached. Now what do we mean when we say a people group is unreached? What's the definition of an unreached people group? Oh, Joshie knew. <laughs> Glad you asked. It's, it's right up here. An unreached people group is a people group among which there is no indigenous. Now, what does the word indigenous mean? Native. Like native coming up from within. Yeah. So no indigenous community of believing Christians with adequate numbers and resources to evangelize this people group. So an unreached people group either has no Christians or not enough Christians and resources, they can evangelize their own people. So they need outside cross-cultural assistance, right? Or they need missionaries. And so generally, the, 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 the tipping point is 2%. If 2% of that people group is evangelical Christians, and they say that is enough people, that's, that's a large enough population that they can evangelize their own people. So 6,500 of those people groups have less less than 2% believers. And so in that room with the big map and all those cards there, those cards are all different unreached people groups. Now you notice here, unreached people group, below that is a, is a subcategory. So of those 6,500 unreached people groups, some of those people groups are what we call unengaged people group. An unengaged people group has no known on-site active church planning currently underway. In other words, they have no missionaries. There are no missionaries. There is nobody who is there learning the language and having a strategy of, of planting churches among them. And research again tells us that 59% of Muslim groups, 43% of Buddhist, and 34% of Hindu people groups are unengaged. So... No, no believers, no, maybe never even heard of Jesus, and there's nobody even there to tell them. They say 86% of Muslims, Hindus, and Buddhists don't personally know a Christian. 
We're going to get into that here in a minute. Here's another way we might understand unreached, unengaged people group. We're not talking about people who are lost and don't know the Lord. We're talking about people who are lost and don't know the Lord, and there's nobody who speaks their language that can tell them. There is no church that exists. There is no, uh, not a large enough group of people within that people group, or within that tribe or nation, to, to reach themselves. That's an unreached people group. When I'm riding through the city on my bike, and I just look around me and I see mobs of people, mobs of people, and looking into their faces and remembering to look into their faces and um, thinking, is there one of these people, do one of these people know Jesus? Probably not, probably not. If what you want to do is change people's hearts and change millions of people's hearts, this isn't something that you can do in the flesh. So prayer is really the lifeblood of our work. Around the city, seeing so many students around uh, 11 and a half million people as I commute, the whole train is filled with people and the reality that the less than 1% of them are Christian. Just, that's what really breaks my heart. And seeing the need for the gospel here. The core of the gospel is life on life. It's people touching other people. And if there's anything we can do, it's to get the people that are that are here connected with the people that are there. So we're not talking unchurched. There are a lot of unchurched people here that don't go to church but could. <laughs> I'm talking about un unreached, uh, beyond access. It's not a matter of lostness. The people in Minneapolis are just as lost as some Buddhist in Thailand in the village somewhere. But the difference is access, access to the gospel. So is it something that can be measured? Well. We just made sure. Anybody ever been on a, pro on a website called Joshua Project? Okay, familiar with Joshua Project, so you can look up any country in the world and list all the people groups in that country and those kinds of things. So yeah, it can be made because we've measured it. It, it. A lot of effort has gone into looking to see where are people groups in the world, which ones have been reached, have the gospel. So if it's something we measured, is it something that can be completed? Can we finish this task? It's measurable, it's doable, it's completable. And it can be completed in this generation. Right? Will it be will it be finished? Well, the Bible says in this gospel the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. And I don't know whatever your eschatology is, you know what eschatology is, study of end times. But the word of God is always, the end is always associated with the completion of this task. And then, of course, we look at Revelation 7 9, how that every tribe and language and tongue and nation is worshiping around the throne. When you read this sign, what do you think?
when I see this, I think it's not incorrect, but it's incomplete. What have they left off there? Yeah. They've left off the millions and millions and millions of people that are beyond access to the gospel. Is this really the, 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 the mission of the church is just to make disciples? Because I can do that here and I don't have to leave my family. And I don't leave comforts. I don't want to leave my job. No, we're missing something here, aren't we? We're missing the nations. So it says to disciple a nation. So uh, the question that comes to mind then is, well, how do you disciple a nation? Right? And so when we first asked what's the imperative verb, we said the word go. The go is a verb there. It's actually uh, what we call a participle. So it... it uh, modifies or speaks into that primary verb, so it's go, and it's actually kind of in the present tense, so you could say going, it's kind of as you go, as you go, so going, and there's two other participles there that end ing, what are they? Going, baptizing, and then teaching, and what do you teach new believers, what does it say there? Teaching, yeah, Teaching to obey. You teach the commands, but you teach them to obey the commands. Discipleship isn't just about teaching information. Because <laughs> most of us have been educated way beyond our obedience. Right? Those three participles. How do you disciple a nation? By going, baptizing, and teaching to obey. Now think about that. If I go and share Christ and people get saved, and then I take them, I baptize them, identifying them as followers of Jesus... And then I gather them together and teach them the word of God and teach them how to obey and follow Jesus. So a bunch of people have been saved, baptized, and gathered together regularly to learn how to follow Jesus. What does that sound like to you? Don't say campus outreach. Sounds like a church, right? A bunch of people have been saved, baptized, and meet together and study the word of God. Figure out how to follow Jesus. Sounds like a church. I think the way we disciple a nation is we go and plant churches. The plant churches. The plant churches. The plant churches. One other thing. Jesus said, all authority. He spoke this mandate, but first he stated how that he has all authority. And sometimes when people talk about missionaries in, in, in going, right, um, you say, well, who are you to go and tell these people that they're wrong? You know, missionaries go and they, they ruin culture. Well, we have the right to go, don't we? Because we've been sent out by the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. He has the authority and he's given us authority. So we have the right to go, right? But along with that authority, not only do we have the right to go, but guess what? He has the right to send. He has the right to send us. Away from family, away from friends, away from everything familiar to us, into discomfort, into danger, and even death, for the sake of his name among the nations. So, turning the page on page 14, I want to look a little bit into the life of Paul and how Paul understood this mandate and how this mandate and, and this story that we've looked at, how it 
guided Paul in his life and missionary efforts. So, the book of Romans, turn to chapter 15. Paul wrote the book of Romans. So let me know why. Why did he write the book of Romans? Okay. Yeah, he's right, writing to uh, the church in Rome, who are Jew and Gentile. What's happening at this moment when he writes it? He is he is getting ready to leave where he's at, and he's getting ready to go and take the gospel to Spain, where it's never been. So he's getting ready to take the gospel to people who have never heard. And he says to the church in Rome, I'm going to stop and visit you. But he says, my ambition is to take the gospel where Christ is not known. And after he states that ambition, he says, because as it is written, and then he quotes, then he quotes scripture, those who were told about him will, or were not told about him will see, and those who have not heard will understand. So he says, my biblical ambition is to take the gospel where Christ is not known. And so I'm going to come and visit you for a while and then have you assist me on my journey there to take the gospel to unreached people. Now, how, is he, how are they going to assist him in taking the gospel there? What are some ways? What kind of assistance do you think he was looking for? Financial assistance. Financial assistance and? Prayer. Prayer. Yeah. So what we have here in Romans is... A missionary support letter of a missionary who's taken the gospel to people who have never heard. And now whenever we talk about people who have never heard the gospel, never heard the name of Jesus, one question that, that a lot of times comes up is, yeah, what happens to those people that have never heard of Jesus? What happens to them when they die? Right? And that we don't have a single verse that says, Verily, verily, I say unto thee, <laughs> unless you... Heard of Jesus and accept him when you die, you'll go to hell. We don't have a single verse that says that, but we do have a whole book. And so think about some of the things that Paul writes in Romans. And I think what he's doing is he's laying out this, this theological argument or theological understanding of what happened to those people who've never heard. So from the very first chapter, he starts out by talking about since the creation of the world, the invisible qualities of God have been seen, so that men are without excuse. And he talks about how the whole world will be held accountable to God. And he talks about how, how, how not only, not only the, the heathen that live out, you know, wherever, even the Jews who were born as children of Abraham, if they don't put their faith in Jesus, they too are lost. And so he kind of summarizes it in chapter 3, and he says, There is none righteous, no, not one, none who seek after God. You, and, and then... And then in chapter 5, he gets into the fact that we are only justified through faith in Christ. And in chapter 10, I probably think one of the clearest arguments that he makes is he says, he sees some great news, Romans 10, 13, right? Whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Good news, right? Whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. But he follows it up by saying, but how can they call on somebody they haven't believed in? And how can they believe in somebody that they haven't heard of? And how can they hear unless someone goes and preaches to them? And how can they go and preach unless they are what? Sent. 
And so Paul's saying, hey, these people in Spain, they're lost, they're dying, and going to hell because they've never heard. I'm going to go preach to them, and I'm asking you to send me. He's inviting them to be a part of the story and partner together in the gospel and taking it to places where Christ is not known. And so Romans lays out this argument. When we get to chapter 15, there's just a lot of stuff in 15 that really gives us some insight in, in, into Paul's understanding of missions. So I want to start Romans 15 and start in verse 8 and look at some of those, some of the things, some key distinctions he makes for us there on page 14. Starting in verse 8, Paul says this, For I tell you that Christ has become a servant of the Jews on behalf of God's truth to confirm the promises made to the patriarchs. Okay? We looked at that last night. Who are the patriarchs? Abraham, Jacob. Right. Or maybe Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. (laughs) Right. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, right? So what is the promise he made to the patriarchs? He will bless. He will bless them so that what? They may bless others. They will bless others or other nations or all peoples, right? So enjoy my grace and extend my glory, right? So Paul is referring back to that key passage of scripture that's the, that the rest of the story flows out of and he says he that Christ came to confirm that promise and that promise was made so that verse 9 the Gentiles the ethnos may glorify God for his mercy and then look what he does he quotes out of second Samuel and he says therefore I will praise you among the Gentiles I will sing hymns to your name then he quotes out of Deuteronomy 32 he says again it says rejoice O Gentiles with his people then he quotes out of Psalm 117, Praise the Lord, all you Gentiles, sing praises to him, all you peoples. And then he quotes out of Isaiah, and he says, The root of Jesse will spring up, one who will arise to rule over the nations, the Gentiles will hope in him. Look what he's doing there. He quotes out of the books of the law, history, poetry, and prophets. What is he doing? What point is he trying to make? You know, I think if he would have, instead of writing a letter, if he would have been in Rome teaching this stuff, you know what he would have done? Is he would have put a string across the front of the rooms, and he would have hung a bunch of verses on it. You think? Maybe not. But he's doing, he's doing the same thing that I did last night. Is he's, he's going through the whole story, and he's saying, listen, this is what the story is about. This is a missionary story about a missionary God who wants to gather worshipers for every tribe and language and tongue and nation. And you were created to be a part of this story. Notice what he doesn't do. He doesn't talk about his specific calling. But rather he lays this biblical basis and says, this is the story that we were created for. And he invites them to be a part of that story. Also notice those verses. Look at the progression in the verses. And he, tra- he, he pulled out these verses. He didn't have a concordance. He didn't have a, an app on his phone to help find verses. There were no chapters and verse breakdowns either. He just knew his Bible. And I think he pulls out some specific verses because I see a progression here. I will, I will praise you among the Gentiles. It's like I'm going to go among these people, these unreached people, and I'm going to proclaim you. And then he says, Oh, Gentiles, rejoice with his people. And then by the third verse, 
It's the Gentiles that are now praising him. It's like he went to this people group, he began to witness, he began to preach the gospel, and now they are worshiping God together with him. So we see in your book here, the letter A, distinction between this, this call and this command. He doesn't mention the call, but he focuses on the command. Second distinction he makes is Romans 15 and 16. So continue down in Romans, look at verse 15. He says, I've written you quite boldly on some points as if to remind you of them again. What do you think those bold points are? <laughs> I think it's going back to those things like the whole world will be held accountable, the men are without excuse, that there's no one righteous, no, not one. That, that if they don't know and call on the name of Jesus, they can't be saved. And so I've written you quite boldly on these points to remind them again, because of the grace God gave me to be a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles, to the ethnos, with the priestly duty of proclaiming the gospel of God. Now look, look how he describes his role as a missionary. So that, say, I proclaim the gospel of God so that the Gentiles might become an offering acceptable to God. He didn't say, I preach the gospel to the nations so that they won't die and go to hell. But he says, I preach the gospel to the Gentiles, to the nations, so that God may be worshipped. So that God may, so they will come as an offering acceptable to God. They come as an offering acceptable to God when the Gentiles, when the nations come as worshipers. So what Paul is saying here is that missions, a good definition of missions is, it's about going and gathering worshipers. Missionaries are people who go and gather worshipers for God. Sometimes people say, oh, right, yeah, he's the missions guy. And I say, no, I'm not. I'm the worship leader. I'm not a missions leader. I'm a worship leader. Amen? Yeah. My, my, neighbor, my neighbor wrote a book called The Let the Nations Be Glad. Have you ever read that book? Anybody ever heard of my neighbor? His name's John Piper. He lives a couple blocks from here. <laughs> you saw him this morning? He was jogging to the street. He was jogging? Wow. Way to go, John. I mean, Pastor Piper. Um, he wrote a book called Let the Nations Be Glad. And one of the first statements in the book, it says this. Missions exist because worship doesn't yet among all people. Missions exist because worship doesn't yet among all people. And so he goes on to, to talk about that the, the missions is not the ultimate thing. Worship is. Because man is not ultimate. God is. And so the, the goal of missions is worship. It's why we go. It's to gather worshipers. But he goes on to also explain that the fuel, the fuel for missions, the fuel for going is also worship. It's the motive. It's what drives us to go. Has anybody ever heard of the Moravian Church? The Moravian Church, a long time ago, had a movement happen, and in 20 years, they sent out more missionaries than the Protestant, all Protestant churches had in the previous 200. Let's hear a little bit about their story. Okay. It was the early 1700s when John Leonard Dobear and David Nitchman first heard about the island. They were at church on an ordinary Sunday morning and the pastor was speaking about a place in the West Indies where there had never been any gospel witness. He told of a man who lived on an island 
who was an atheist slave owner with about 3,000 slaves, all of whom would live and die there without a chance to ever hear of Jesus. Deeply disturbed by what they heard, these two men in their early 20s made the decision to go to this place to reach these slaves with the gospel. Their plan? Sell themselves into slavery so that they could be among these men. Sell themselves into slavery. These guys, they weren't heading on a short-term mission trip. These men left to go and live and suffer as slaves. And they had no idea if they would ever come back. Their families and friends, in large part, were all against their decision. And yet, John and David prepared to go. And so the story goes, these two young men arrived at the pier to board the ship. Their families and friends all there to say goodbye. The men boarded the ship and set out. And as the gap between the shore and the ship widened, the two men linked arms. And one of them raised his hand and shouted, across the gap these final words may the lamb that was slain receive the reward of his suffering
chapter 5, it says, and they sang a new song. You are worthy to take the scroll and open its seals, because you were slain, and with your blood you purchased people for God from every tribe and language and tongue and nation. Even Jesus, when he went to the cross, was God-centered. He purchased people for God. And those nations, those unreached nations, they are the reward of his suffering. That is the primary motive, the fuel for why we go and give to see them reached. Continuing in chapter 15, go down to verse 19. We're going to start about halfway through that verse. It says, Paul says, So from Jerusalem all the way around to Illyricum, I have fully proclaimed the gospel of Christ. It has always been my ambition to preach the gospel where Christ was not known, so that I would not be building on someone else's foundation. Rather, as it is written, those who are not told about him will see, and those who have not heard will understand. This is why I've often been hindered from coming to you. But now that there is no more place for me to work in these regions, and since I have been longing for many years to see you, 
I plan to do so when I go to Spain. I hope to visit you while passing through and have you assist me on my journey there after I've enjoyed your company for a while. Paul makes kind of a couple of incredible statements there, right? He says, I fully proclaim the gospel of Christ. And that's why he's leaving the area. Is he saying that everybody there has been saved? Yes or no? No. Is he even saying that everybody there has really received a full understanding of the gospel? Yes or no? No. But they could. <laughs> that's the point. They could. The gospel is there. The church is there. Believers are there. And people can hear. They have the opportunity to hear. So he says, there's now no more place for me to work. Now, is he saying there's no more work to be done? He's not saying there's no more work, but he's saying there's no more work for me. Who's me? Paul, the missionary. So he's saying the missionary task is finished, and now the work of evangelism can continue. All right? So, difference between evangelism and missions. Evangelism is about reaching more people. Missions is about reaching more peoples. So once... The church is there. Once believers are there, the gospel is there. The work of evangelism can happen by those people reaching their own people. And so then the missionary task is finished and it's time to move on. So not only is it things between evangelism and missions, but reached and unreached. So Paul identified places that he needs to exit and places he needs to enter. And his, ambivocal, his biblical ambition was to go and enter places where Jesus was not yet known. Letter E, he makes a clear distinction between goers and sons. He doesn't say, hey, everybody go, <laughs> right? But he says, I'm going to go, but I need you to send me. So there's this partnership in the gospel. So I think the point is this, is that whether or not you personally go... Our commitment to finishing this task that's been given to us should be no less. That's the focus that every tribal language of nation is worshiping around the throne. Then the last distinction between important and priority. What hindered Paul up to this time from going to Rome? He says in verse 22, this is why I've often been hindered from coming to you. What was the this? It's the statement he made right before that, right? And it's his, his ambition, his biblical ambition to take the gospel where Christ is not known. He said, this has hindered me. I would love to come to Rome and, and hang out and be in small group and have a potluck and, and enjoy life. I would love to do that. But I've been hindered from that because of the mandate. And so I don't go where I want to go. I go where the gospel needs to go. <clears throat> so, Paul was driven by the mandate. He understood the mandate that is also binding on us today. So how are we doing in taking the gospel? So the, where does the gospel still need to go? maybe is the question. So here's a map, progress of the gospel by people group off of Joshua Project. And you see there's three colors, green, red, and yellow, right? And so we have the green is where there's an established or significant church. 
There's the yellow where there's a forming or nominal church, and then we have the red where it's uh, least reached or unreached. And so notice this area of the world that's very red. What is that area called? 1040 window. Why is it called the 1040 window? The latitude line. Yeah, so it's pretty clear here if you look. 10 and 40 go across there, and there it makes that window of that part of the world where the gospel is not yet gone. So if we take a look, a closer look at that red area, then we see the map we have in the other room, right? And within that area, 90, 95% of the world's unreached live in that part of the world. And it's the, it's the stronghold of five major religious blocks that spell the acrostic thumb. The tribal, the Hindu, unreligious, uh, Muslim, and Buddhist. <clears throat> Excuse me, guys. I want to just take a closer look at some things about this area of the world called the 1040 window. Can you guys all see this? Or if you need to stand up uh, in the back, you need to stand up, come into the aisle, whatever, but come to where you can see. Um, I know we're a little bit crowded in here. So some things about the 1040 window. First of all is that two out of every three people in the world live in the 1040 window. Two out of every three. So, tell me, what do you think life is like here in the 1040 window? Describe what life is like in the 1040 window. Poverty. Okay, poverty. 85% of the poorest of the world's poor live in the 1040 window. What else? Very community oriented. Very community oriented? Yeah, a lot of those cultures, you're right, are very community oriented. What else? It's hot. Yeah, oh man, some, some unbearable weather, yeah. Man, I take people on vision trips to Southeast Asia. I'd like to go in December, man, right now. It's too hot. <laughs> what else? Maybe dangerous, too. Okay, dangerous in what way? Because of why? The wars. Okay, a lot of, a lot of tribal wars, a lot of, uh-huh. A lot of different kinds of wars. What else? Population. Yeah, pretty crowded, right? Two out of two out of every three people in the world live in this part of the two out of every three people live in this part of the world. It's very crowded here. So, what are some of the problems that come with crowding? Health. Yeah, a lot of a lot of disease and sickness and lack of good health care. Lack of uh, water, clean water, proper sanitation. You know, I lived in Laos. Laos, most majority of Laos doesn't have bathrooms. People say, well, where do you go to the bathroom? A lot of people say, where can't you go to the bathroom? There's a tree over there, there's a bush over there, <laughs> right? You ride the bus and uh, take a you know, six, eight hour bus ride, right? And you stop the bus and everybody gets off and all the men go over to the bushes over here, all the women go to the bushes over there and they come back on and you continue down the road. But lack of clean water and sanitation. What else? Lots of different religions. Yeah. Oh man. So much, so much diversity there. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Food security is a big deal. We were involved in getting some, taking out some grain bins in Iowa and, and shipping them to, to Laos because if you have a flood and lose crops, there's no way to, there's no way to dry and store grains. And so food security, big deal. 
Now, another thing about a 1040 window, only 1% of Bible distribution is aimed at the 1040 window. Only 1% of Bible distribution is aimed at the 1040 window. So, if you look back here behind Hannah, you see this banner here. Sorry, Hannah. <laughs> there are about um, 6,000 languages in the world. A couple thousand of them have uh, completed Bible. Four or five hundred have completed Bible, uh, or course, you know, new maybe a testament, New Testament or whatever. A couple thousand are in progress, but 1,800 languages have nobody have have a project even started. A translation project has not even started. So you look on here. The blue is the continent. The blue bar is the continent. The brown bar are the countries. And listed under each one of those countries are all the languages that Wycliffe has identified as needing a translation project, but 1,800 have not even been started. So they're still waiting for the Bible. Somebody even begin translating the Bible in their language. Um, also, for every dollar given in U.S. churches... We keep 96 cents at home. We give three cents to places already reached with the gospel and one penny to the 1040 window to unreached people. So $1, we keep 96 cents at home. Three cents goes where the gospel is and a penny to reaching the least reached. So I'm guessing if that's all the more money that we're putting into that part of the world, then we're probably not putting a lot of prayer there either, right? Because where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. So we look at these statistics and we say, okay, so if I was going to be at a church that's sending missionaries, where would I send them? The priority would be on where the church is not rather than where the church is. I was going to work a good job because of the good degree I got at the U and support missionary. Who would I support? Probably my priority would be on people going toward the church it is not. Yet, the Bible, or the Bible, <laughs> statistics tell us that out of every 10 missionaries sent out from U.S. churches, that only one go to the 1040 window. Now let me ask, what are some reasons why? What are some reasons why you think that only one of every 10 goes to the 1040 window? What would be some maybe possible reasons why? Part of it is there's not a lot of churches accessible in two locations. In fact, there's not a whole lot of churches that you can go to and reach with like Syria or something like that. Okay, so it's all pioneer work. Yeah. There's, there's nothing going on, so it's, it's pioneering a new work. So that's difficult. Yeah, what else? It's difficult to get in the borders a lot of the time. Okay, a lot of these countries are called what we call can countries. You know what can country means? We're not supposed to go there. <laughs> We're not supposed to go there. It means creative access nation. So it means you can't get a missionary visa. So you need some uh, kind of other degree, like engineering or something like that. Then you can get in there. <laughs> not saying you need Josh, but just <laughs> we had this talk earlier, right? Yeah. So, some kind of a marketable skill that gets you into some of these areas. What are some other reasons? Only one out of ten go there. There must be not one, two, who's 
Yeah, that's dangerous. It's dangerous. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Danger. Mm-hmm. And I feel like it'd be like way harder. Like I'd rather go somewhere where there's like some stuff. <laughs> like I, like you'd be starting from nothing there. Like, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The pioneering work of it. Yeah. How about this one? Um, not everybody that goes on a short-term missions trip ends up going long-term, but almost everybody that went long-term had a short-term missions experience, right? But where do the majority of our short-term missions trips go? They go to places already reached with the gospel, right? More than four out of five people go to places already reached with the gospel. And where we tend to go first, that's where we tend to have our, have our first love cross-culturally. And then there's missionaries there invite us to come back. And next thing you know, we have more than 9 out of 10 going. One thing nobody's mentioned yet, and that's calling. Nobody said anything about calling yet. Every time we talk about missions, we talk about calling. And if it's only about calling, if it's all about calling, then whose fault is this right here? Yeah, yeah it's God's fault, right? You think this is God's fault that these people are unreached? No. While we're waiting for a call, we've already had a command. Right? We've already had a command. We're already commanded to take the gospel to the ends of the earth, to disciple all nations. Hudson Taylor said the Great Commission is not a suggestion to be considered, but a command to be obeyed. So the question is, how are you involved in seeing that the gospel gets to the ends of the earth? I think the mission is clear, right? The mission is not to just win as many individuals from the most responsive or easiest to access people groups. We talk about, we talk about one of the reasons only one out of ten go is because these places are dangerous. Well, yeah, all the easy ones have been taken. This is what's left. <laughs> right? This is what's left. So it's not to win just as many individuals from the most responsive, easiest to access people group, but rather God has commissioned us to gather worshipers from every people group. So there on page 16, very last line, the orange there. So hopefully after everything we've learned yesterday and today and things we've looked at today and, and looking at Scripture and what God has mandated to us, that the question is not, will I be involved in taking the gospel to unreached peoples? But rather, how? It's how. How will I be involved? And so that's what we're going to talk about, especially tomorrow morning, is how will I be involved? All right? Any questions? All right. We're going to just move right along so we get out of here in time. Turn to page 21. Question. Yeah. Uh, do you mind throwing out just some organizations that you feel like are doing a good job of attacking the 1040 window? Yeah. Yeah. Um, we have three three main ones, four maybe that we 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 look at part of split. Three that we look at especially are folks on unreached peoples. One is OMF. That's who I served with. OMF is uh, was started in 1865 by a man named Hudson Taylor. Anybody heard of Hudson Taylor, yeah. missionary in China? 
And then in the late 40s, early 50s, when they were kicked out because of the Cultural Revolution, they reorganized as OMF International, and they're all over East Asia. Um, their, their focus right now, the, the general director just made a call to, uh, uh, to face a task unfinished, and so they are especially looking at where does the gospel still need to go. Uh, pioneers, who the video of Unreached Peoples, Pioneers, is uh, OMF is focused just on East Asia. Pioneers is all across the board. Uh, but again, Unreached Peoples is their focus. And then Africa Inland Mission, missionary named David Livingston, long time ago in Africa. So Africa Inland Mission. And they, are, they, they have a kind of a new director just recently, and they're really focused on, especially on North Africa. So like you mentioned, North Africa is almost all red, the southern part of agreement. So they're really focused on North Africa. They're really doing a lot to mobilize the African church to go to other places in Africa. And so African Inland Mission is a main one. All three of those have brochures in our rack. So that rack in there is for you to take anything that you want. So yeah, good question. Those, those are three of the agencies that, and if you're interested, I'll get you connected personally with people I know there and you can talk with them. All right, all right. Looking at uh, Hinduism. Um, this, this man, uh, and I won't even attempt to say his name, but he's a former president of India and a great Hindu scholar from his acclaim to Hindu view of life. Look what he said about Hinduism. There has been no such thing as a uniform, stationary, unalterable Hinduism, whether in point of belief or practice. Hindu, Hinduism is a movement, not a position, a process, not a result, a growing tradition, not a fixed revelation. Somebody once said, Hinduism, understanding Hinduism is like trying to nail jello to the wall. <laughs> and you might find that out today. So what we're going to do, remember the circles we looked at worldview, we're going to try through the tour today to come back and try to construct what a Hindu worldview is. All right? So to help us do that, there on page 21, you see this grid. All right? So what we're going to do now is we're going to answer the biblical Questions: What is the biblical view of God, humanity's problem, solution, means, and outcome? And then, when we come back after the tour, we're going to answer those same questions from a Hindu viewpoint. So right now, take a couple minutes and fill those in. What is the biblical view of God, humanity's problem, solution? Okay, let's, let's talk through it a little bit. Biblical, what's the biblical view of God? I know you're not supposed to put God in the box, but uh, what did you put in the box? What are some things? I know, it's, yeah, there's a lot, but creator. Creator, good, what else? Holy. Holy. Triune. Triune. Sovereign. Sovereign. Mm -hmm. Unchanging. Unchanging. 
one thing we take for granted is that he's personable and he's knowable. And you'll find from the Hindu temple today and the Somali markets later today is that their concept and their concept of God, he's he's not he's not a loving father. He's not this personable, knowable God. Alright, so what is humanity's problem? Yeah, sin and as a result of sin. Separation. Se separation from God. That's our problem. So if humanity's problem is separation, what's the solution? What do we need? Bridge. We need a bridge. We need reconcile, right? We need reconciliation. And what's the means of reconciliation? Blood. The cross, right? <laughs> yeah, Christ's blood, his forgiveness, his putting, putting our trust in his finished complete work. And so what's the outcome then? What do we get from that? And more important question, what does God get from that? We get grace and he gets glory. Yeah, exactly. Right? We get grace and he gets glory. That's a great way to put it. I like that. All right. So turn the page on 22. Okay. There atop assignment, it says you're going to go and you're going to tour a temple full of idols. As we talked about last night, as we looked at Acts 17, God's glory being robbed. You're going to see that. And so, um, go observe what's going on. Ask questions about what you see, about what you hear, and allow yourself to be affected. All right? So, when you get there, when you get there, you'll, 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 uh, there's like a coat room. You'll put your shoes in there, and then you'll all kind of meet in the entryway. And the tour guide, most likely Dr. Mohan, will kind of give introduction, all right? Um, this is a tour, and Dr. Mohan likes questions. He's fine with questions, all kinds of questions. We have brought hundreds of people on this tour with Dr. Mohan, and every group has asked him questions. And we have seen a change over time of the way he answers those questions and and we believe that God is really at work in his heart. So feel free to ask questions. We're not there to argue, but, but it's fine to ask questions. You're on a tour. Ask questions. Take notes. When, when kind of conversation is after all those questions or whatever, then they'll go upstairs into the worship area. And that's where you will find 21 mini temples patterned after, or 18 or 19, 20, something like that, patterned after major temples in India. And so they house 21 different gods and goddesses. So you'll go around and take a tour and look at the different, hear about the different gods and goddesses, and, and Dr. Mohan or whoever it is will explain the different gods and goddesses and their stories, and, and, and you'll learn about him. While that's happening, there and could be a lot of people, a few people, but there will be people there that have come to worship. So there'll be people there bowing fully on the ground. There'll be people maybe... Uh, pouring milk or honey over the idols, uh, serving them with human hands, bringing them offerings, maybe priests chanting. There'll be all this other stuff going on upstairs while you're doing that. So Dr. Moan tends to not talk real loud sometimes, and then with a lot of going on. So feel free to, maybe not that close, but feel free to get up close, <laughs> all right, so you can hear. Um, also, it's an open tour, so you may be the only group. There may be other people there as well. That, that have come on the tour. A lot of times I meet people from, sometimes from Bethel and Northwestern, sometimes from Century, sometimes from the U, sometimes from different places that are 
world religions class or whatever. So, you know, you never know who might be there. Uh, when you're done with that tour, um, lunch starts at 11.30. If you ask a lot of questions, you know, you could go right up to 11.30. If not, and there's some time in between the end of the tour and 11.30, then you'll take some time and you can just continue to walk around and view what's going on. And feel free to engage people in conversation, even upstairs in the worship area. One of our volunteers, Tim, I don't know if we'll see him this weekend, but um, one time he, he went to this guy. This guy was going to each, each, of, the, each of the temples, the mini temples. And, and so Tim went up to him and said, hey, can I just follow you around? And each time after you, could you talk to me about what you're doing? Oh, yeah, sure. And so Tim just follows him around the whole time, and the guy explained everything to him. All right, so uh, think about last night. Did you enjoy answering questions about your culture? Yeah, yeah, right? Yeah. If somebody's really asking questions and a genuine learner, people enjoy talking. You know? So don't be afraid to ask questions. People enjoy talking about their culture. They enjoy explaining those things to somebody who's a genuine learner. So you'll ask all those questions and, and whatever. Then at 11.30, you'll go downstairs and eat. All right? Um, and so you, you'll go in. Um, you'll, have, you'll get these little tokens. Do you usually give people, everybody, their own token? Yeah. Okay, so you'll get this little token that'll pay for your food. You'll just get in line and go through and hold your plate and we'll dump it on. Then, spread out and try to find people that you can engage. So there'll be other, there'll be Hindu people who've come that day to worship and they'll be down there eating. Uh, some of you, make sure you have lunch with Dr. Mohan, the tour guide, whoever the tour guide is, and continue conversation with him. So he's a believing Hindu? Oh yeah, yeah. Um, Yep, and he knows he knows our ministry well. <laughs> so, Dr. Mohan, he's been on our website and everything, so he, he knows who we are. He, he, think, he, he believes we're training missionaries and all kinds of stuff. So, the, the Somali market, they don't know us. So, you know, we don't say you're on a missions trip. Don't even, we don't even talk about Engage Global. You're a student from whatever college here in the Twin Cities, and you've come to learn. That's the truth. Especially the markets. Yeah, anyway. We'll talk more about that this afternoon, but you'll go and then, but after the tour, you'll get your shoes before you go eat lunch and wear your shoes when you go eat lunch. And then when conversations are done and lunch is done, then you'll come back here and then we'll debrief uh, the experience and what you heard, what you learned. Uh, and as we say, try to construct this Hindu worldview. All right. Any questions? So think about the things we learned last night from the, the, Cross-cultural simulation from Fa, you know, ask questions. A lot of times I start a question, hey, I've never been to India, but I'd like to go. If I was going to India, what should I go see? What should I go experience? What, you know, that's always a great way to start a conversation. A lot of times I'll ask people, where are you from in India? You know, when you lived in India, how often did you go to the temple? Are there a lot of temples where you live? What about other religions, other Muslims where you live? And mosques. Did you ever go to the mosque? Are there Christians where you live? Did you ever go to church? You know, and then just coming in and, and getting into some conversations. And so, you know, the tour guide said this. Can you explain to me more about that? You know, so those kinds of things. All right. I, I, I'd love to get into marriage. So I hear about arranged marriages in India. Was your marriage arranged? Can you can you describe how that works and tell me about that? Super friendly people. All right. So I want you to take just a couple minutes.
and turn to somebody beside you and pray before we go. It's a dark place, all right? People respond in, 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 in different ways, but it's not unusual for people to go in there and feel a, just a, feel a dark presence, to feel sometimes headache, to feel different things. It's just, it's just dark. So I want to pray before we go. So everybody just, in partners, pray. pray for sure, pray two things. God, increase my, <clears throat> increase my compassion for Hindu people. Increase my passion for your glory. And just let's prepare ourselves before we go. Thank you for listening to this message from Campus Outreach Minneapolis, the college ministry of Bethlehem Baptist Church in Minneapolis, Minnesota. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter the content in any way without written permission from Campus Outreach Minneapolis. For more information, we invite you to visit us online at cominneapolis.org.